Hello, amazing ones. Welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now episode. I'm Jackie Dobrinska, your host, and you, each of you are a part of this worldwide community of people who have been touched by Ramdas in some way, shape, or form, or you're about to be, which is perfect because this whole episode, or most of it, is about the phenomenon of time. So it's episode 239, and it's called The Moment is All There Is. So to give you a little bit of background, this episode was taken from a study group on aging that Ramdas was hosting in 1995, which is two years before his stroke. And he was still working on that book that he was writing that he was workshopping in this episode. So for most of this lecture, as I mentioned, he's talking about the phenomenon of time. And I think for much of it, we'll be able to relate because I'm sure we've all had those moments where we felt like there wasn't enough time. We felt rushed and overwhelmed, like there wasn't even space to take a deep breath. And ironically, that's how I have felt this week. Maybe you have too. But for others or at other times in our lives, maybe during the pandemic, maybe it felt like the opposite. Maybe it felt like all we had was time and that great void of unending time to fill can also feel equally as overwhelming. And so what is one to do? That's what Ramdas is talking about throughout this episode. And it reminds me um, of this idea, this um, goddess in uh, the Hindu pantheon. Her name is Kali. And they say that she's the devourer of time. She's also the creator and the destroyer. And they say that she will cut off your head to save your life. And in this context, it sort of is like she will destroy the part of you that is caught in linear time. The part who can't quite see the whole of things, can't quite get quiet enough. And so Ramdas is like sort of breaking this down in this talk. And he doesn't use these words, but it reminds me again of this, these Greek concepts of uh, kairos and chronos time, uh, the time of the mystics, that deep time that's sort of measured in epochs, and then the time of clocks and watches and phases of the moon, and how we move from one to the other, and how one helps free ourselves from being in that clock time, from being time bound. He has this great quote that I'm going to share. I try not to share too much of what he's about to say, but this quote is so great. He says, stop sacrificing the present for the future or the past, depending on what stage of life you're in. Anyway, it's a really juicy talk. It's one of those lectures where after your consciousness, at least mine, felt like it shifted a little bit. And those are the talks I always love most. Um, so in this conversation of time, uh, I have actually had several conversations lately with people in the field of death and dying. In fact, this Sunday, I'm having one on our women's satsang with, um, Dr. Aditi Seti, who is the founder of the Center for Conscious Living and Dying. If you want to be a part of that or any of our different various affinity or general meetups, uh, go to ramdas.org slash fellowship and sign up and you'll get the invitations in your email. 
But last week I had a conversation, a live stream conversation with Frank Ostaseski, who's a leader in the field of death and dying. Encourage you to rewatch that one. You can find that at ramdas.org slash live stream dash replays. And in my discussion with Frank, uh, we talked a lot about presence, about how the best way to slow down time to feel like there is enough of it is to get into the here and now, to fall into that timeless moment where peace and stillness exists within the movement and chaos of it all. And there's a lot of research on how the brain works and how it's either novelty, um, novelty or presence that slows down and elongates our experience of time which is a really helpful reminder for me this week, maybe for you as well. This idea that maybe time can bend. Maybe it's not so linear after all. And I wonder how that might change our lives if we were to realize there was enough time. Which might be our topic question at the next Soul Pod Meetup, which is where we get together and talk about these podcasts. So if you want to join that, and I encourage you to do so, Go to ramdas.org slash fellowship and sign up. And speaking of community, next week, a bunch of us are going to the annual Ramdas retreat in Maui. And maybe you would like to be there, but for some reason, you can't jump on a plane. Very understandable. So I'm happy to report that you will be able to attend from the comfort of your own home. We are, have, we are live streaming it and parts of it will be free because we really want to give it all away. And we have to walk this line of being an organization in the world where we need to support ourselves. And um, so we are charging a fee if you want all of it and be being able to rewatch it. And that's how we're able to continue to do things like give you this podcast and give you community events and give you library, Ramdas library resources. So find out more. Go to ramdas.org slash retreat. And with that, I just want to say thanks for tuning in and for being here. And thanks to all of you who donate so we can keep doing this. And thank you to all of our sponsors who help us to keep doing this. If you don't already donate, we encourage you to do so by going to ramdas.org slash donate. And as always, we hope that you are nourished by this episode and these teachings, whatever good may come from it. May it benefit all of us in our daily lives and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. So, here is Ramdas, here and now. Namaste and blessings. Okay, now, if we look at time, we will see, first of all, we will study the time as it exists within this. Here you have present, and you have past, and you have future. And you experience it as linear chronological time. Okay, that's one kind of time you work with all the time. The clock, the watch, Greenwich Mean Time, etc. And so you're in a, a chronological time that is 
moving this way. And you remember the past and you plan for the future. The soul, uh, now within that world, within that world of time, that's the one you and I live in most of the time, we, uh, we experience, um, like as we get older, the time is moving faster. And that happens because the percentage of your life, a year now, when you were one year old, that was half your life between one and two. Here, a year is a very small, it's one sixtieth or one fiftieth or one seventieth of your life. And so it's a much smaller unit comparatively. You've got all that rest of it, so it goes, seems to go very quickly. That's one component of why it goes faster. There are a lot of other cellular components about why you experience it going faster, but it's also because of uh, the uh, attenuated nature of the future, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so for some people, they're experiencing time going faster, and because they're involved with things, their experience and th this culture, their experience is never enough time. There's too little time for everything they want to do, so they feel rushed all the time in relation to time. But for somebody who is what we euphemistically call a shut-in, whatever that means, it's an interesting one. For somebody that isn't very mobile and doesn't have a lot of stimulation, time hangs heavy on their hands, and they're dealing with the issue of boredom. And that's all of us at some time or other, too. So we're looking at not enough time and too much time. And these are both psychological experiences within this domain of ego. And. Um, now that business is, because we have the Japanese stock market, so business goes on around the clock. There's no more blue laws in Massachusetts, so there's movies on Sunday. Everything, the mall is open all Sunday. It's big business. You can feel that we're going into a thing in which uh, the nature of time is changing. Uh, for example, keeping the Sabbath. Because in, in the Jewish religion, the... Uh, the Sabbath is a day in which time stops, in which it's like the seventh day, it rested, it's rested, it's the time, the relationship to the, of the Sabbath, the other six days, is an entirely different way of thinking about time. But a lot of that has gotten, of course, lost, or at least the meaning of it's gotten lost. And now we're dealing with a lot of really strange things of time, all still within this ego. We're dealing with things like um, light years and nanoseconds. I mean, just think of that. Think of how fast light travels in a second. And then think of when you say something is a light year away, means how, a year, how long it takes, how far, for light to travel in one year. Just imagine how far that is. And that's only one light year. We're talking many light years when we start to go out into the universe. At the other end, we're because of computers, we get frustrated if I push a button to bring up a 60-page document and it doesn't do it like that. 
I get bugged and I think I need a faster chip. <laughs> so this is all within the domain of ego time. Now, once you move into the soul, the soul has a different time span to it because, and I, I'm coming back again to um, reincarnation, which um, all we're accepting at the moment within this class is that there is a mystery, but there is clearly something, a larger context in which this life exists. And the soul is the doorway to that, and we exist in that larger context here. The soul is still going through an unfolding of its karma, so it is still working in time, although the times now are vast. In India, for example, they refer to yugas and kalpas of time. These are time units of like 400,000 years, as opposed to what we talk about primarily in terms of recorded history, three, 4,000 years. And so in that case, you are born through cycles, born in the Sat Yuga, the Tret Yuga, the Dwart Yuga, the Kali Yuga, the four cycles of, of time. And then it all ends and then it starts all over again. So there's vast cycles and you and I have been doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this according to these models. So, and yet something's going on because the soul is working out its karma through all these incarnations. And ultimately, as we talked about before, the soul's yearning is to be merged back into the mother or the awareness or the one or the getting out of the boundary between itself and everything else so that it's all I, ultimate. So um, the soul is working that out and that's in these vast time frames. So from the soul's point of view, the E, your whole life, is very much like a blink of an eye. From inside it, it seems like it's, am I gonna go 60 years or 80 years? But that's like those little flies around a light, around noon. You know that a boy, they live about a day and they fly around lights. And around noon they say, well, this is life, you know. <laughs> and you're just watching it come and go, you know. And so you've got to get a sense of time frame. I keep looking at my cat, who's very vital, and I keep saying, you're an old cat. You know, the cat is 15 years old. I keep multiplying it by somewhere other. <laughs> So what we have now is um, uh, a clock here for the soul that runs in terms of yugas and kalpas and reincarnation and cosmic time. It's a different clock. And ultimately, when we are here, this contains time. In other words, A is beyond time. So you are both not in time and you are in time. When you identify with this, you are not in time. When you identify with either of these, you are in time. Awareness versus soul and ego. And they talk about uh, gaining awareness is like snatching the pearl of awareness from the dragon time. That's one of the mystical ways of talking about what awakening and enlightenment is. It's freeing your awareness from being entrapped within time. 
Not that you don't use time, but you're not used by it. And in awareness, everything is within it, so past and future all are now within awareness, which is, uh, turns out, the present moment. You'll begin to feel how this all works, how the image works in a little while. Now, developmentally, um, when you were born, you didn't have a real sense of time. I mean, it was an all-or-nothing response. Either, ah, or, or, you know, it was just immediate. And you were living in the moment fully. And some of you never left that. <laughs> Most of you, however, started to time-bind. You started to learn past and future, which are really concepts, but you started to learn how to organize the universe in terms of time. And... Um, that would have been fine if it was all neutral, but it started to get loaded because of all kinds of things like your endocrine system so that you wanted to get older faster. I remember wanting my driver's license, wanting to have private places to make out in. Um, I wanted, I couldn't wait to start on my career. God. <laughs> I mean, I, was, I remember pushing, grabbing at the future, wanting to grow up so fast and uh, wanting to get on with my career and wanting to get further and deeper and oh, grabbing for the future. And so at that time, I really sacrificed a great deal of the present into the future. I think most of us did that. So you're at midlife, now you are in a, in a culture in which time is money. Hear the harshness of that, but just think of what that means, time is money. It's what's known as a consumer economy. It's a way of thinking about it. Time is your enemy now, because if you could stretch it, you could have more money. And you can see how, as you go from the family doctor who hung out for a cup of tea to the health plan where you have five minutes and he has so many an hour or she has so many an hour, you realize, and with lawyers at so much an hour, so much a word, you get to the point where you are realizing what violence it is doing to the, the rhythms of life, the human spirit, just to live in this culture. I, I uh, spend a lot of time in New York City, in Manhattan, and I watch, because I'm, I'm living uh, on the Upper East Side, and uh, around Fifth Avenue on Saturdays, a lot of old people come out to walk. They do it every day, actually. And uh, they, they come to a corner of a street, and it is a totally traumatic experience because everything there is working by a certain time frame. Taxi drivers are moving as fast as they can because time is money. And the whole thing is moving very fast and somebody is shuffling or walking slowly. <laughs> and you realize what violence it does to their spirit because they have remained in a subculture there that is obsessed 
with time and its relation to money. And everybody's rushing or rushing to get more pleasure or rushing to more. More is better. It's part of the more is better world that this culture uh, um, has refined the art of. Now, um, it's uh, the obvious thing that happens in aging is that the, uh, the length of the future gets reduced in relation to the past. You go from it's all in the future to it's in the future and in the past, and then the future starts to come up against you as you run up to the demography and the, you know, the expectations, life cycles. And um, because of the nature of the changes in our lives as we age, things slow down. Things slow down because of a lot of psychological reasons, social reasons, economic reasons, all kinds of reasons. And this slowing down is often seen as because you're still in the old model of efficiency. Like all, many of those older people in, that, in New York City feel very disempowered by a traffic light because it isn't really responding to their needs. They could live in a village and they could walk as slowly as they wanted to. Or at least in a little enough village. And the time frames, because have moved faster and faster with obsolescence and so on, I, I, the image I love is the one of, um, um, I think it was Oxford or Cambridge. I don't think I told that story. Oxford, uh, Oxford or Cambridge University. And the dining hall was this, is this huge, long dining hall. And they had all these beams on the ceilings. And the beams started to, um, uh, got... Um, started to rot or got some uh, infestation. And the trustees were very upset because these were such huge trees that had made up these vigas, these beams. And so uh, they decided they were going to put in shorter trees and then they would just cut them so that they would fit together and appear to be one long tree. And so they called in the head gardener and asked him where they could find the appropriate trees for to get double trees. He says, oh no, he said, we have the trees for the whole thing. He said, 300 years ago, they anticipated this and they planted a grove of trees for these beams and it's ready now. <laughs> I mean, we, our society just doesn't live much like that, does it? We, didn't, we weren't even here 300 years ago. I mean, that's like, So, um, as the future gets shorter, and it includes things like um, illness, incapacitation, and death, and the past gets longer, and you can rewrite that any way you want to, a lot of people start to live in the past as they get older because they don't want to think about the future. 
So they're going from having been future-oriented, and they shift from going future-oriented to past-oriented, still not where, if they were, they would be free, which is present. Do you hear? I mean, if you sit around, I've gone to, I used to have a, a little um, motorhome, and I would go and live in trailer parks in Arizona in the winter, and there was, there's a whole huge culture there of retired people. And if you listen to the conversations, a huge amount of it is about the past. Huge amount is about the past, inordinately. So, um, if we understand that um, what we would like to do is in order to go from ego to soul is to, one of the doorways through is to be in the present. It was a tricky title called Be Here Now several years ago. <laughs> I'm going to read you a few pages. Uh, when I thought I would just write this book, these were a few pages I wrote. Now it turned out I couldn't do that, so I'm talking the book. So this is a book we are, you and I are between two covers at the moment. We just don't know it. But I'm trying to show you the inner experience of time, just to start to understand the kind of work we want to do with ourselves. I was coming to visit my guru in India. <clears throat> the British Airways 747, having moved me at 500 miles an hour from New York via Frankfurt, now deposits me in the middle of the night at the Delhi airport. As I come out of the door of the plane and start to descend the stairs to the tarmac, I begin to leave speed and efficiency behind. The humid semi-tropical night has its own rhythm. Uh, just an aside, I recall once many years ago, I had a, that old 1938 Buick that I talked about with the state trooper. And uh, I was driving across, and at the, in the Great Salt Lake Desert, it stopped in the middle of the night. I mean, it was 1938, year old car. And um, so we were inside talking and listening to music and all. That was the world we were living in, going to Las Vegas or wherever. And suddenly, everything was silent, as only in Death Valley it can get in the middle of the night. And so I had to get out and thumb to go get some help because I knew that the battery was dead and the car wasn't going anywhere. And uh, So I got out and suddenly I went from the inner chamber of this car, which had a certain dimension of time and movement in it, to being outside and in the vastness of this universe. And I stood there just complete, because usually you'll just be busy. Was a car coming and you'll stay in your mind? But if you just go out into that time, and then a truck came along, a big diesel, and picked me up. Suddenly I was back in the other time world. And I remember being aware of the, when I got outside, it was thank you for letting me break down. Do you hear how, and it took just that little bit of time before, damn it, to thank you. <laughs> Once inside the terminal, the motley line of embarkees stand in line to see the customs agent. <clears throat> the
The line is long. It is 3.30 in the morning, Delhi time. The passengers, their fatigue compounded by the confusion of their bodies between their home time, the time and the place where they boarded the plane in Delhi time, the line is moving so slowly as to be not moving at all. These Westerners, so used to their money-buying efficiency, are tired, frustrated, and angry. Certainly, we grumble, the country could have more agents, could welcome us in a speedier manner. We are a line of malcontents. I am one of them, the first few times to India. But finally, I come to understand. India is once again taking me through a rebirth experience. And for that to happen, my judging mind based on efficiency must die. To hold on to who I was but a moment ago is the cause of such obvious suffering. Look at all these people. I need only look about me in the customs line to ascertain how suffering arises from a mind that is unwilling to surrender into the new moment, the moment the customs agent lives in. For the next step in this odyssey of my journey to my guru, who I've come to see, a few hours later, I am aboard a train bound for Agra with a stop at Matra, where I will disembark. Traveling by train in India is full of rich lessons. The trains go really slowly. As a Westerner, very early, I went through my impatience. It didn't help a bit. After I gave up my impatience each time, I'd settle into eternality. This trip is going to go on forever. <laughs> All my life I've been on this train, and I will always be on this train. So what? One eventuality is that I become entranced with images as they appear through the window. A young woman in the field we are passing, she wears a colorful sari and walks along a path in the field in another of those middle-of-nowhere places, a large clay jug balanced on her head, her undulating gait allowing her head to be still as she walks. She is close enough for me to see her eyes, traditionally underlined with coal eyeshadow, a hibiscus flower worn behind her ear, her many silver bracelets on each arm. Like an image in a Gauguin painting, uh, in a, an action that will never end, our minds must supply what went a moment before and what will transpire in the next moment. As we enter into the feeling of the painting, these past and future are present, not in so many facts, but in a sense of the rhythm of life and of death. So with this woman in the field, whose pace compared to my slowly speeding train, which covers us with fine ash as it moves so purposely forward, is slower still. I see that the path stretches behind and ahead of her for what appears to be an endless distance. Her life, which appears for less than 30 seconds on my mind-eye screen, has its own slow, repetitive rhythm that both retracts and repels me. It repels that part of me that wants a stimulating life in which something is always happening. It attracts that part of me that yearns to slow down enough to enter the rhythms of earth and sky the seasonal cycles of planting and harvesting crops, of the coming and going of generations. At the Matra train station, I am accosted by rickshaw wallers, uh, people that ride rickshaws itself, offering to take me the next six miles of my journey to Vrindaban in their bicycle rickshaws. 
Then there are the motorcycle rickshaws with their loud and noxious engines that carry six or eight people in the flatbed cab attached to the motorcycle. Cheap and uncomfortable, but a form of transportation that will give me the feeling that I am hastening towards my destination. If I want to spend several more dollars, there are a few ambassador automobile taxis that will whisk me not only quickly, but relatively quietly to Maharaji. I choose none of these. Something in me yearns to taste of the time of that woman walking through the field, if even for a moment. And I know that if I am to be ready for meeting Maharaji, I need to slow down much more. Otherwise, my rushing mind will try to turn him into just another bit of ill-digested experience to add to my collection. Is this coming through all right? So I settle onto the back floor of a water buffalo-drawn tonga. Water buffaloes go very slowly, and it's a cart behind a water buffalo. When I drove in India, if you are, if, as far as you can see in a straight line on the Grand Highway, you see a water buffalo in the middle. You blow your horn when you can just make it out, and by the time you get there, the buffalo will have moved off the street. It's just... <laughs> the trip, which in the taxi would have taken just a few minutes at most, will now take well over an hour. I reach the ashram with my offering of flowers and fruits, and then I am in front of Maharaji. Yet another dying is called for, the dying of doing into being. I am placing my offerings before him, bowing, smiling, being welcomed, and finally sitting on the ground among the other people who have come for darshan to visit with him. And then nothing seems to be happening. We are all just here. I feel once again the wisps of impatience drifting around in my mind. I have come all this way and nothing is happening. <laughs> I listen to what is being talked about to glean a teaching, but it all seems trivial. When I am finally quiet enough to just look at Maharaji, there is a new dimension. He fills time, and the dimension of then and now, of coming and going, no longer is the template for measuring experience. No longer am I, in my mind, somebody who has just come from America, or will soon go on, endlessly seeking something. For a moment, the moment is all there is. And it's enough. It's enough. I am no longer caught in the thinking mind that makes me separate from the moment. I am part of the moment. We are the figure in the Gauguin painting, the young woman walking in the field, the past and the future, not absent, but rather melded into this moment, this moment rich with meaning, this moment enough. After a few minutes, Maharaji says to me, Jow, get lost. 
and I'm banished to the back of the temple. A cup of tea is brought to me. The strong, sweet milk tea is in a clay cup. Later, after I have finished my tea, I will throw the cup against a wall. The cup will shatter, and then, in the course of being trampled by cows and rained upon, it will once again become part of the earth from which it was molded. Maharaji said to somebody once, why are you so prideful? We're all made of clay. My body made as it is out of water and clay is already broken, dead. So now, how sweet it tastes. That's the monk with the cup, the beautiful crystal goblet. And his student says, how can you use that? Did I tell you, how can you use this goblet? It's so precious. He said, in my mind's eye, it's already broken and then I can really appreciate it each day. In your mind's eye, are you already dead? Comes a really interesting question. Thank you for... Now, many people come to India. If you take, see people go on tours of India in big buses, you will see people who hold on to efficiency and Western time all the way through India and then are horrified by what they call, what in India would be called the tamasic quality of India. The quality of India where nothing seems to be happening. <laughs> you can't get anything done. You just can't get it done. They just don't know how to live. They're like, God, they are so lazy or something's wrong with them. Do you hear this? Do you hear the issue? I mean, there's a whole culture. Because in traditional cultures, time means something entirely different than in the culture we're living in. Somebody once said, the only way, the only hope for the world around time is to be constantly drenched by that which is beyond time. And it was just that quality of being with Maharaji when I was with, who knows who he was? That's his problem. My experience was that when I was with him, I was meeting a being who was not in time, whose primary identity wasn't in time. And yet his body was in time and we were meeting in time. And very often he'd look at me in a certain way and I would get the feeling that like those deck of cards you flash and they show pictures moving, played with those. Um, he was flashing through my incarnations. And then sometimes he just gets so far out, he would kind of lose where he was or who he was with. And he'd look at me and he'd say, did you know Lincoln? We'd all go, no, Maharaji, of course, we're 1860, da, 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 da. And he'd just go like that, you know? <laughs> See, we kept wanting to make this real, and he was coming back in here, and we couldn't meet him, you know? He called me Samat Guru Ramdas once. For two weeks, he called me that. 
I had no idea who that was. It turned out it was the guru to King Shivaji in 1600. So you're, not, you're getting a real thing today with me here. <clears throat> so to come into that, to the moment, you begin to feel like when you're deeply involved in gardening, for example, and you're just in the moment of what you're doing, and think of all the things you have in your life that are so compelling that they draw you into the moment. It's not like you forget all your responsibilities. They're all in order, but you are, the focus is right in what you're doing, not in what you did or what you will do. And in that moment, there is no time. In a moment, there is no time. It's the moments strung together that give you, and that's the thing the mind does. But each moment has itself is beyond time. So if you hear where you're going with this, you understand that one of the practices to move from ego to soul is to change your relationship to time. Change where you are sitting in relationship to time. Now, in order to get free of time to be in time. In other words, I have a watch and I have a calendar book and schedules and all that. The question is, am I living in that? Or as Christ said, am I in the world but not of the world? Am I outside of time but using time? But my basic identity is not in time. In order to come into that with the methods are getting, in some way, working with things of the past and working with things of the future to enfold them back into the present moment more and more fully so you are more fully in the present, not denying the past or the future. And then you will experience this, where past and future are all among present, which is this. In one of the most advanced practices I'm doing now in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, one of the phrases that we work with, and I may have said it to you already, but let me say it again. It's a five-line stanza. And it says, prolong not the past, invite not the future, alter not your innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. There's nothing more than that. That's the five lines. I like the last one. There's nothing more than that. So we'll, we're going to look at the issue of don't prolong the past and don't invite the future. Because we have to understand what that really means. That's a very profound teaching, just those two lines. Don't prolong the past, don't invite the future. Uh, many of you, I take it, have read Castaneda or some of that, the original books of uh, Don Juan series. And Don Juan at one point says, I can't even paraphrase it, he says, a man of knowledge has no personal history, no country, no name, no family, no place. He goes on about how a person like that acts. But what he is saying is 
let go of personal history. Now, let go doesn't mean deny. In 1979, I was in um, Soquel, living in Soquel. And uh, I had just moved about five times in the past few years because I am a wanderer. And uh, it got so, I was collecting memorabilia. And I had boxes of memorabilia. I mean, old love letters, old important historical documents, um, old thises and thats, whatever they were, old license plates, whatever, stuff, <laughs> stuff that I couldn't bear to give away. And here I was, a wanderer. Now, in the, in the Indian tradition of wandering, my guru had, he was called, as you know, at one stage, Cracked Pot Baba. Because somewhere in this long life, he went around naked with a piece of cracked pot on his head, which he'd pick up a broken pot, and he'd beg with it, and he'd use water with it, and that's it. And then when it broke, he'd pick up another one. And that's, that's minimal. That's minimal living, all right? And he slept under uh, roads with uh, dacoits, with uh, thieves, and uh, that's the world he lived in. And um, so I can't imitate him, obviously. <laughs> but what happens is every time I move around since Maharaji said you should not stay in one place too long because yogis and water both go bad if they stay in one place too long <laughs> I mean, that's a certain kind of yogi that's not everybody that's not householders so I kept moving, and I got to the point where I had a, um, you know, a rent a, a U-Haul behind me <laughs> that was just full of these boxes. Now, I never opened the boxes. I labeled what was in them and sealed them and put them up there. And I, at some point, I thought, after about the fourth move in the year, you know, with these renting and boxing and lifting and hurting my back and all, I thought, what is this about? Why am I saving all of this stuff? And I realized that I was saving it under the illusion that later, I wasn't looking at it now, but later I would miss it, you know, and I would want to see it again. Basically, I, I saw that I was anticipating that later I'd be bored with life. That life, because now life was so exciting. Who had time to look at pictures of the Grand Canyon, for God's sakes? I was busy getting the newspaper. I was having my tea. I was looking at the robins. What the, you know, how am I going to open boxes of memorabilia? Do you remember the time we were? And so I thought, this is absurd. I'm not going to run out of stuff. No. And I could risk it, you know. I couldn't imagine it because what I noticed in Burma when I was in that room in meditation for two months was that the, the simpler it all got, the more rich. Once I got over the concept of boredom, the more rich the moment was with hardly anything. No books, no papers, no pictures, no nothing. Because our inner universe is so incredibly, it's all that at least. Everything you have a memory of, you have. It's, it's who you are, part of who you are. So I decided to throw them all out. About the middle of the night, the next morning, I found myself out of the garbage pails. <laughs> 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 I 
having remembered one I couldn't possibly not see again. You know, oh God, I will never see that person's face again. So I decided I got to burn them. I can't just put them in the garbage pail. So we had a fire in the fireplace, and I'd say goodbye to each thing, and I'd put it in the fireplace and burn it. And I was feeling radical. I was feeling irresponsible. I was frightened that I was going to be terribly grieving later for these things. And uh, there were things that I still, when I went to throw away, I said, no, I still need this. So I didn't throw it away. But most of the things were being clung to in the anticipation that I would need them some other time, but I don't need them now. And those went. Now it is uh, 15 years later. My basement is full of boxes again. <laughs> so by the time this book comes out, there'll be another burning. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. <laughs>